It's Fake Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes in Theory, Episode 11, 1980s Nostalgia Consumer Culture Case Study, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. The old rock war is long, for his trouser comes too tight. Unfashionable Constructing a beginning, middle, and end, um, and he's trying to uh, present himself as this master of the universe, just like the masters of the universe down on Wall Street. And there, is- the Smurfs Christmas Special will return after these messages. Portions of the Smurf Christmas Special are being brought to you tonight by Mattel Toy Company, who would like to wish you a Merry Christmas from their family to yours. Now you can imagine all the power in the universe. The Masters of the Universe Collection. 23 pieces, each sold separately. There's He-Man and these heroic action figures. Skeletor and the Warriors of Evil. And four fighting creatures. Castle Grayskull, Point Dread and the Talon Fighter. You put them together. And battle machines like the Attack Track. Batteries not included. What would you do with all the power in the universe? All right, so long time no record. I wanted to do a somewhat lighter episode, and I wanted to go over the children's franchise from the 1980s that I liked when I was a kid, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I saw, I think it was called The Power of Skull. It was a documentary on the creation of He-Man that I watched on Tubi, and watching it uh, recalled... An episode of the show, The Toys That Made Us, from four or five years ago that I watched that was also about the creation of the Masters of the Universe property. And um, Masters of the Universe was really the first entertainment franchise that I got into. It meant something to me as a child of the early 80s, and I thought that I would probably have enough to talk about. Now... I made these notes like a month and a half ago, and I just haven't had time to record, but I've got a page of notes here, so I'm going to start going over them, trying to remember what I wrote, and we'll see where it goes from here. I don't have this laid out in as orderly or as logically as it could be, but um, I seem to recall that podcasts don't really have to be that professional, and this is just what you're going to get. So here we go. The first toy that I ever remember picking out for myself was the original Skeletor action figure. He was the bad guy of the Masters of the Universe world. And I remember um, 
Well, I don't remember picking it out, but I remember hearing about how it was the first toy that I ever chose for myself. Supposedly when I was two years old, uh, that's what they told me. And he was a character that I remember liking when I was a little, little kid. Now, I should say that I'm, I'm not an expert on Masters of the Universe. Were you to go back in time in the mid to late 1980s and you saw the house that I lived in and all the toys that I had. Footnote. I had a lot of toys when I was a kid. And as one of my school pals said, I was spoiled, but I wasn't a spoiled brat. Uh, that's what he said to me. End of footnote. And all the toys that I had, late 80s or the early 90s, you would think that I was, uh, you know, huge into Masters of the Universe, Transformers, Legos, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and a few other properties. But the truth is that, yeah, I had a lot of toys when I was a kid, but I never really took the further step in becoming an expert or like a lifelong collector of them. The property that kind of changed that for me was comic books and specifically X-Men. I did throw myself into learning more about the X-Men when I was a teenager, whereas the earlier properties that I was into when I was a kid, I liked them a lot when they were hot, and I tended to have more of them than most other kids that I came in contact with, but I lived in a pretty small town. So at the time, it would have seemed like, oh, wow, this kid's really into all this stuff. And yet when you pull back in the broader picture and as these uh, fandoms evolved over the years, it became apparent to me that I'm not really an expert on these things. I wasn't really even a collector. The, the thing that made me a collector was when I got into baseball cards. My grandfather's second wife is the one that introduced collecting really into my life. I mean, I had a lot of Nintendo games, but I wasn't really a Nintendo game collector per se. I was just into Nintendo at the time. Just like earlier on, I was into He-Man, I was into Transformers. But when the sports card craze really hit in the very late 80s and the early 90s, that's really the first thing that I ever collected. And then after that, there was comic books, and I didn't really hold any of these youth-oriented franchises with me. When I became a teenager, I sort of stopped caring about them. I remember there was a 1990 line of Transformers called, I think, Action Masters. And they were Transformers action figures that didn't transform, which is ridiculous when you think about it. And yet the mold of these action masters, Transformers, uh, I had maybe half a dozen of them. And the look of them was just so cool. But I remember even at the time when I got into those, it was like, okay, well, this is when I was probably eight, maybe nine years old. And even at the time, it was like, okay, well, I'm getting a little too old for action figures because they were toys back then. They weren't seen as this um, object of collecting. There wasn't the fetish there for collecting them at the time, at least not for me as a kid when I was the direct target audience. So it wasn't really until X-Men that I really sort of 
organized my sort of pursuit of the fandom. But with Masters of the Universe, uh, Masters of the Universe was the first franchise that, that really bit me, that I really got into. So I had a ton of the toys, and I remember hearing that uh, the first one that I picked out was Skeletor. And years and years and years later, when I try to work these biological details into some sort of uh, meaningful psychoanalytic profile, uh, I think of like, okay, well, what's the poetry there? That in, in my first act as a consumer, I chose a miniature skeleton, which is like emblematic of death. So if I was writing a novel, that would be a sort of prophetic act and you could you could read into it and say oh well this is the protagonist's first consumer choice and it's uh he chooses a memento mori uh so does that mean that consumerism ultimately leads to the death of culture is is that what that means or when the care when the protagonist is uh, on his deathbed uh, when he's reflecting on his life, the first thing that flashes back in his mind as he's dying is choosing the skeleton. You know, you could go that way with it too. Of course, it doesn't mean it doesn't really mean any of that. It's just something that happened, but that's the poetic understanding, and uh, and it causes me to think about too something that made me think about it in the early two thousands when I read a Paul Auster book. I think it was called The Stones of Fate. No, it was called The Music of Chance. And at one point in the novel, it's about this guy and this other guy who they lose a card game to this guy and to work off the debt they owe him, they have to like move stones to build a wall. And they don't know, they're sort of trapped there at this guy's place and they don't know if they're, if they're going to make it out. And at one point, the owner of the land, I think he has a son or a grandson or maybe it's a nephew or someone else. But there's a little kid in a skeleton costume. And um, seeing the kid kind of creeps the workers out because they don't know if they're going to get out of this place alive. They don't know if they're ever going to work the debt off. And they see this little kid innocently playing around in a Halloween costume, but he looks like a skeleton that reminds them of the death that could be uh, awaiting them and could be finding them soon. Uh, so that's what my picking out Skeletor means to me, that it floods my mind with these ideas of consumerism as a, as a sort of death, as a harbinger of death. And uh, I mean, it's, it's overblown. It's obviously overblown. But yeah, Skeletor was the first toy I ever chose. That's my first act as a consumer in a consumer society was to choose Skeletor. And I liked Skeletor. I liked Hordak even more when Hordak became the main He-Man antagonist. I remember also when I was a kid uh, that at one point my mom sort of noticed about me that I always liked the bad guys. And she had a comment about it just to say, I think she just asked me, why do you always like the bad guys? Because I had a lot of action figures. I had a lot of hero action figures, but I did in my play and 
in the requests I would make for certain toys that I wanted, apparently, uh, I sort of tilted towards the bad guy characters, whether it was Skeletor, Hordak, for the Transformers, whether it was Megatron or later on Galvatron. I liked the bad guys. There's something about the bad guys. Now, does that does that um, does that indicate antisocial tendencies? Because I I want the guys in the story that are going to come in and just disrupt everything. Uh, maybe, but I like the heroes too. I had the hero characters. I think more what it indicates is that the bad guys were just cooler. Magneto was cooler than Professor X. I didn't have Optimus Prime, but I had Galvatron, and I thought the Decepticons were cooler than the Autobots. I didn't have a lot of G.I. Joes. I mean, that's a whole thing that I could go into into as to why I didn't really like the military. Even then, my sense was not to like uh, the military-oriented action figures. But within G.I. Joe, I did like Cobra more. The, the Cobra figures were, were cooler. So that's the first thing. Now let me go through my notes here. So like I said, I'm, I'm not an expert on Masters of the Universe. I didn't keep up with the franchise after I grew out of it in the mid to late 80s. I was never a consummate expert on it even then, uh, nor did I follow it into its later incarnations where the Mattel company tried to get something else going with the property. I mean, it was huge. It was so gigantic for a few years. And then it just more or less dropped like a rock, which really goes to show you that um, even before the internet, trends and fads could turn on and off like nothing. In some of these shows and in some of the research that I did about Masters of the Universe, they say year over year how much Masters of the Universe merchandise was bringing in and the growth was just astronomical but the fall and the collapse of the sales were in some way even more impressive you know how do you go from selling almost a billion dollars worth of merchandise one year to selling only maybe three million or five million the next year it seems like there would need to be more technological control over the culture for something that hot to collapse that quickly and yet there wasn't it was more as I understand it it was more a supply chain issue and more or less a quote-unquote natural decline that people had just had enough of these um, goofy otherworldly characters but uh, even though I'm not an expert in the franchise uh, I mean, I know enough, and the value that I can bring to it, I think, in a podcast is to is to talk about the cultural aspects of it, the psychological dynamics, what it says about consumerism, etc. So, one of the notes that I have down here, and it's um, from my point of view as a as a trained as a formerly trained or a trained former classicist. I mean, I have to compare it to the Homeric epics and Greek mythology and to say that in comparison, Masters of the Universe, like all of these other franchises, pretty much uh, in the modern age, it's it's artificial. I mean, the first thing you need to understand about Masters of the Universe is that 
it's not real culture. It's not folklore. It's a name brand. It's a trademark. It's a copywritten artificial story made to seem like an ancient epic, like a legend, almost like a King Arthur. It's in that kind of a mold. And yet it didn't develop naturally from the culture. It was created all of a sudden, all at once. It was created as a replacement for Conan the Barbarian because Mattel was going to do a line of action figures based on Conan the Barbarian because there was the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie coming out. But when the movie received an R rating, the toy company blinked and thought, well, if the movie is only going to be accessible to adults, then why would we make children's toys of that? Now, of course, fast forward 10 years and there were action figures of RoboCop. There were action figures of Total Recall. There were action figures of Aliens and Aliens 3. And I think most of those movies received ours. But earlier on in the culture, before the consumerism was established and largely established by Masters of the Universe, Mattel didn't want to make an action figure line for children for a movie that received an R. So He-Man was a reconfiguration of Conan the Barbarian in a sense at first. But what is Conan the Barbarian? Is Conan the Barbarian in a sense more authentic culture than He-Man? I mean, it depends how you look at it. They're both artificial. But what does Conan have going for it? Conan has singular authorship, which made for a more careful, more intricate, more thoughtful composition of the Ursatz mythology because the creator, Howard, uh, Robert E. Howard, was a thoughtful guy, did know mythology pretty well, so he could sort of, like J.R.R. Tolkien, fabricate his own. On the other hand, He-Man was very much the work of multiple authors, and genuine folklore, genuine mythology... Uh, has a mass authorship. Now, did He-Man and the Masters of the Universe have a mass authorship? No, but it had a group authorship. So how do you balance the, the two? How do you compare the two? It's inauthentic for Conan the Barbarian trying to be a piece of genuine culture, a genuine mythology, to have only one author. On the other hand, even though He-Man has multiple authors... They're multiple authors who just sort of scrambled things together uh, in the interests not really of the culture, but in the interests of consumerism and in the interests of, more straightforwardly, of capitalism. And that's not necessarily a bad word, but that's what it was. That was more or less the prime directive, was to produce a action figure property that would sell. Robert E. Howard wanted to sell books, too. He wanted to sell short stories, but he had more time. He wasn't pressed as much as a group of toy designers being given, you know, a million-dollar budget or whatever it was, would have felt the pressure to deliver something to a big company, whereas Howard, sure, he had to deal with the publisher. He had to deal with the people that owned the magazines. But it's not as 
contrived and high pressurized a situation as the boardroom of a multi-million dollar company would have been. There wouldn't have been that kind of pressure in uh, Robert E. Howard's room when he's on his own trying to compose and come up with the idea for Conan the Barbarian and the world. So that said, I mean, there, there isn't really, between the two properties, even though He-Man is certainly um, an after-effect of Conan, between the two properties, it isn't as though I would look at one and say, oh, this is the more authentic, this is the good one, and the other one, that's false or that's more artificial. Because I, I like the group authorship aspects of something like He-Man. When you watch the programs that I recently watched about the the origin of the character and the world, it is quite neat to hear all of these different artists and um, engineers working at Mattel all coming up with um, their aspect of the character and the surrounding world uh, to sort of come up with something that does seem like a shared universe. And it, for what it is, it's it's definitely pretty cool. I have in my notes here, I'm just going to read things off, a small band of designers made for rapid group authorship, manufacturing an epic story. Now, the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that what Mattel was used to doing was licensed properties. In other words, there was already a book or a movie or something else out there, and they would just adapt that to make a toy line. Whereas He-Man was an original creation of the Mattel company and of the people working there. And yet it's interesting, too. I mean, everyone who knows probably... A lot of you know this as as well as I do, but when they were trying to pitch He-Man, some of the executives would say things to them like, well, how are the kids going to know what the story is? And the executives had to say things like, well, didn't we tell you we have a a comic book? There's going to be a DC comic book and a three-issue run. And then afterwards, they're going to even make their their own little, little mini comics to include with the action figures. And I ha- I have those comics. I haven't read them in a long time. But apparently even, even with the oldest comics, the, especially the ones that came with the first run of the figures, they didn't really even have He-Man's origin stable f- from the get-go. They had to keep revising things. Supposedly at first He-Man was more or less like a Tarzan, uh, that he came out of the jungle, he came out of the forest, on the alien planet. Uh, so there again too, I mean, he's he's part Conan and he's part Tarzan, at least at first he was. And, you know, we, we see again that this property that comes into being in the late uh, 20th century, it reaches back not only towards King Arthur, you know, the, the whole thing with the swords too. I mean, that's very King Arthur. And one of the designers, for whatever reason, said that he thought of Sir Galahad, um, one of King Arthur's knights. He thought, I don't know why, but he always imagined He-Man as a sort of Sir Galahad character. But they not only reach towards that, but they reach back to these mass market characters of the early 20th century and therefore the early consumer culture when things were really getting up and going. Uh, with the dawn of mass media communications, 
two of those characters, two of the biggest ones being Tarzan and Howard's Conan, that's what people think of. I mean, that, that's the modern era. That's what happened when we had mass production. We had, a, we had those characters as new instant myths. Uh, the earlier myths and the earlier folklore took hundreds of years to slowly catch on with a population the tales of King Arthur, the tales of Robin Hood, they had to pass from someone's mouth to someone's ears, whereas something like Conan, something like Tarzan, you had a mass media that could instantly get a wide a wide group of people that knew of these heroes. So, so sort of instant mythology or instant ersatz mythology. In these documentaries, you hear a lot about the catchphrase, I have the power, which was what He-Man said when he, when he transitions from Prince Adam to He-Man. He says, I have the power. And uh, a lot of the conceit of the show when they made the cartoon, as well as the commercials, were about uh, you have the power. The kids with He-Man have the power. He-Man himself has the power. You're doomed, He-Man. Oh, yeah? Watch this action, Dad. Now I have the power. He-Man and Skeletor each sold separately. And supposedly, the designers and the marketers took that idea straight from what they overheard kids saying amongst themselves when the kids were playing with, with the action figures, the early prototypes of them. The kids would, would uh, take the action figure that they had or that they liked and use the action figure to sort of act out this, I guess you'd call it a power fantasy, where one of the characters would boss the other one around, and they kept using the word power, power. And whether in, uh, whether in the documentaries that talk about this or in some of the online discussions uh, that I've read and heard, this is sort of, in retrospect, looked down upon that oh yeah well that's that's just the the ignorance and the arrogance that little boys particularly of the reagan years would have shown uh it's a sort of lack of politeness and yet valuing power and uh having power as a key word i mean that's that's what certain philosophers had said and were saying at the time uh foucault makes a big deal about power as a as a key term, uh, so does Nietzsche, of course, and uh, I mean that's what we have now. I mean the the only politic, the only real politic is real politic. Uh, it's whatever you have to do to get things done. That's the way it really goes. Uh, might makes right seems like a uh, crass phrase, but that's how things do play out. So what the little boys were verbalizing uh, with the He-Man action figures, it, it, it was the truth. And it's, it's, uh, then it's, it's, uh, then it's, it's, uh, then it's, it's, uh, might makes right. That's how things do play out. It's kind of too raw of a truth to s sit comfortably. But they were phrasing things how uh, the world works, really. Something else you see in these documentaries is that 
the designers, the people that worked on the He-Man cartoon, as well as the action figures, they were constantly having to fight with groups that wanted more righteousness and sensitivity in the brand, whether from a religious sensibility or from a more liberal sensitivity. There was really a concerted effort and there were watchdog oversight groups that were expected to have their hands in the productions of a lot of these shows, even going back to the 1970s. In particular, there was this group, Action for Children's Television, which I guess was founded in 1968, but really gained traction more in the 70s and even in the early 80s. Uh, when they're making Masters of the Universe, they had to keep consulting with this group to get their approval. Now, I don't think it was a legal constraint or a legal requirement necessarily, but I think it w was just something that uh, the company wanted because it would make their, their lives easier. Now, all of this ties in too, of course, with um, the famous or the infamous laws about advertising in uh, children's television. Long story short, uh, in the 1960s, they passed a law. I think it was mostly due to a Hot Wheels cartoon where they couldn't have cartoons that were just basically advertisements for toys. And the famous thing from the early 80s onward, when the Reagan administration came in, they lifted the regulation for that. So then you have this flood, starting with He-Man, but also the other top brands, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Thundercats, etc., on, on into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where the cartoons seem to simply serve as a showcase for these characters and the vehicles and the playsets that could be purchased in the toy store. And there is a very... Uh, reciprocitous relationship be between them and there's all sorts of complaints after the fact that oh this is crass consumerism etc 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 and from about 1990 onwards um, there were successive reforms that pretty much put the kibosh on the uh, streamlined way that this culture creation could happen it was no longer as easy to have a cartoon and have a line of action figures straightforwardly based on the cartoon, have a second season of the cartoon that w would have new characters or older characters and updated costumes that would have action figures of them. Whereas through the 1980s, I mean, this is, this is just what they did and they just, they, that was the hustle and they just rolled with it and the, the kids loved it. Now, a lot of the reforms through the 90s, I don't know what exactly happened when, but, um, and I think that it's, it's a huge oversight of the YouTube community that's so up on these things. I mean, they, they will somewhat reference this material, but they will not really go into detail as to what bill, what reform was passed when, and what specifically did it do? Now, to be honest with you, looking into this online, it's hard to get into the details. It's hard to find an easy uh, presentation of the details. 
that showed exactly what the legislation from about 1990 through 1995 or so was that prevented or discouraged uh, those kinds of cartoons paired with action figures. It still happened, obviously. I mean, through the 90s, there was the X-Men, uh, X-Men cartoon and and the Toy Biz action figures. And there was the Power Rangers. And of course, Power Rangers action figures and other toys were derived from the Power Rangers shows. Uh, one thing I will say is that I think some of the legislation applied at some point, some of the legislation only applied to animated shows. So that would explain why Power Rangers and other shows like it came to the fore or came more to the fore from the mid-1990s on. If a lot of the regulations uh, were about animated shows, well, the Power Rangers isn't animated. Now, something else that the networks that showed these children's programs had to do was they, they had to agree to a certain amount of educational programming for kids. And that that had the effect of limiting the amount of cartoons that could get out there that were of this sort. So even if uh, certain types of legislation didn't abolish certain types of cartoons, if a network just didn't have enough room on the schedule, then that in and of itself is going to limit the amount of shows that could be out there that would have these um, toy tie-ins. That's why we get horrible educational programs like uh, the Magic School Bus and I think even uh, some of the Saved by the Bell shows, either because they were live action or because they could kind of get away by saying they were educational. I think that's why in the 90s you had more shows that were not like the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe mold. The fun mold. And it, it was fun. Living in that culture as a child was fun. We can go on about the after effects and what it did to or with uh, children's psychologies. But, um, I mean, if you didn't have to live with the consequences, especially, uh, it, it was fun. It, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And compared to what the artificial culture has become since, uh, I mean, it, it seems relatively healthy. Uh, now, yeah, it, it was a streamlining of consumerism, uh, but a lot of the people behind it were relatively talented, especially compared to the people that produce genre culture now. I mean, I, I hesitate to even call it children's culture because now that's one of the things that happened. It's, it's, it's all ages. Did the people who worked on He-Man or on Thundercats have more talent, have more literary sensibilities, uh, more mythological aptitude in the 1980s than the current crop of people writing Star Wars shows? I, I would say so. Um, yeah, I mean, comparatively... He-Man and, and Thundercats and the rest seems like the real deal. It seems like a um, it seems like someone consuming that material would be mainlining genuine mythology versus the trite shit that doesn't appeal to anyone. The bloodless work that you see on Disney Plus now, and yet um, 
what the laws, what what the reforms did from the early to the mid 1990s, I can't help but think that most of what they were concerned with, uh, it was not about culture. It was it didn't really have the targeted motivation of denying children access to a fun consumer culture. It seemed much more about two other things. It seemed about it seemed more about morality slash education on the one hand, and on the other hand, it seemed more more just about what's fair in advertising. And I think that is more what was on the mind of the Reagan administration when they repealed the regulation in the first place. It wasn't about, oh, let's let's give these kids this fun consumer culture because, um, frankly, that culture didn't exist yet. Uh, so I don't know what they would have even thought that they would be allowing kids access to because we, we didn't have G.I. Joe yet, not in the way that it, it developed in, in the 80s. We didn't have Transformers. We didn't have He-Man yet. What seemed to be more on their mind when they got rid of the regulation was, well, we shouldn't be dictating content and whether the content serves as an advertisement for a, a product or not, that doesn't matter. Footnote. They could have had congressional hearings and they could have brought in experts and critics, uh, if not Andy Warhol himself, and uh, the politicians could have been informed that actually the distinction between advertising and art is is not very clear when you see a painting of a Campbell's soup can that's the art but it also doubles as an advertisement for the thing being portrayed so is the he-man cartoon just an advertisement for the toys or in and of itself even if it does have that function is it not art is it not content in and of itself and in some ways, the advertisements, the commercials for the Masters of the Universe action figures can be more entertaining and can be graded as uh, higher art than the cartoons themselves. I've liked watching the commercials for the Masters of the Universe action figures uh, in the last few weeks preparing for this podcast more than I've enjoyed um, trying to watch some of the actual cartoons some of which are just plain bad and don't have that many um, redeeming qualities, whereas the commercials, um, the commercials are just perfectly charming. So those are also issues to consider. And I should say also that one of my older uncles, um, he wasn't really an uncle, but you may as well call him an uncle. He was an actor, and when he worked in uh, various sitcoms in the 70s and the 80s he said that the network executives and the production crews would refer to the actual show as the filler they were more concerned with the commercials uh, the commercials were the things that they cared about and paid attention to even more than the actual show the show was just this blob this block and they called it the filler the content was the filler, whereas the advertisements were the important part. So to say that the He-Man cartoon was advertising, that is not an inherently negative quality. End of footnote. And then afterwards, when they, when they um, slowly put the genie back in the bottle, the concern was more from the financial front, was more about, well, what's... 
what's fair in advertising, what's content, what's advertising, how do we draw the lines up on the on the spreadsheets, uh, what do we count as advertising, what can or what should be counted as advertising. Uh, you can't have content that's also advertising. So it seems more it seems more like just someone at the IRS or someone in the financial department was just sort of anal retentive about um, what advertising what could be called advertising, what should or shouldn't be. And but then on the other hand, you you had this um, psychological dynamic, but it wasn't sensitive to consumerism. It wasn't sensitive to um, what a culture was, what a youth culture was what an artificial culture was. It was more sensitive to, we need positive messages out there. So we need educational programming for kids, or we, we can't have violent antisocial stories for children as cartoons. And that drive was there, uh, I mean, I, I guess from the late 60s on, and it grew in the 1970s, this action for children's television. And I, I, th- I, think, I think it was sort of like uh, the alliance between the, the moral majority types on the right and, and the Tipper Gore types on the left who were sort of moral busybodies who wanted to dictate content. Uh, we, we see it now with, with the SJWs and with the journalists and, and all that who care so much about dictating content of um, entertainment and content of culture. But that was there before He-Man. And from these documentaries and from what I looked into and from a few of the episodes that, that I went back and watched, they really are less violent than you might assume. He-Man has a sword, but does he ever use the sword directly against the bad guys? Does he really ever stab them? Or is He-Man more likely to use his sword to cut a rope overhead that lets loose a pot of slime over the head of the villain? He-Man's more likely to do something like that than to use the sword directly. When She-Ra comes into the picture, and we'll talk more about She-Ra in a second, is She-Ra likely to use her sword against the bad guys? Is She-Ra going to cut off the head or the arm of one of the characters? No, not even of the character Modulok, who has multiple arms and heads and can recombine them. No, uh, She-Ra is more likely to use the sword to sort of pirouette over top of two bad guys, charging at her, and then the bad guys will hit each other and knock themselves out. Uh, these are the sorts of nonviolent acts that you see the heroes performing. And yet when, I have to say, and I'm sure most kids, most people who were kids at the time would agree with me, when we thought of these characters, though, it, it, it really didn't matter that the cartoons themselves didn't show any violence. And it really didn't matter either that Skeletor, for example, was almost a comedy relief character. He, w- he, was a, he was a cackling clown more than an actual force of evil on the show. Uh, it, it didn't matter because as kids in our imaginations, we saw them in our minds in the way that they wanted to be seen just by the way that they looked. 
when we played with the action figures, we stabbed the action figures with their swords. You know, we, we took one action figure and its sword or its axe and we hit the other action figure over the head. Or if we didn't actually hit them, we pretended that that's what happened. You know, the, the plastic sword in one character's hand isn't actually going to go into the plastic chest of another action figure, but, but we're going to tap it that way and pretend that He-Man speared Trapjaw. And when we're playing, we're going to pretend usually that Skeletor is this uh, really fearsome evil guy because that's what the character wants to be. And so it, it doesn't really matter that on the cartoon, Skeletor is constantly getting eggs thrown at him and getting tripped up and falling and all, all of that stuff. The way that the characters want to be, the, the kids, at least back then, the kids are going to have enough imagination and enough, uh, I guess, sense to follow the internal logic of the mythology as it's presented before them, regardless of what the cartoon tries to do. I mean, it's the same thing with all, all of these cartoons, too, or most of them from the 80s. There's always the comedy relief character who's like a cute little animal. Like there's, what is his name, Snarf from the Thundercats. And the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon had that little unicorn character. And they're, they're so annoying um, looking back on them. Whenever you see one of these old cartoons from the 80s, from your teenage years up, it's always like, oh my God, get get Snarf out of there. Snarf is so annoying. That's what we Snarfs are here for. Yes, the Reebok. Snarf, snarf. And half the time, I would assume I haven't seen much of them, but half the time I would assume probably Orko is very annoying. And yet... I, as kids, I didn't even realize how annoying they were. I didn't, I didn't like them. I mean, I, I think that the design at the time was for um, those sorts of goofy characters to be thrown in so that the little kids would um, like the, the shows more. But, but as a little kid at the time, I barely even registered those characters. We saw the concern of the moral police also in the demand of there being lessons in every show. You think of, of course, the end of every G.I. Joe cartoon where they would teach kids how to run from a fire or the end of a lot of other cartoons, including Masters of the Universe, where they would have to come in at the end and say, oh, what did we learn in this episode, oh, you have to look both ways before you cross the street because did you see when He-Man looked the second way if he didn't look to the left earlier in the episode, then the fucking enemy vehicle would have hit him. So they were just contrived things that were tagged on at the end, but that that's why, because of these groups like the Action for Children's Television wanted and liked things like that. And I'm, I'm sure at, at some point there were political concerns too. I don't know if it was a requirement, but I'm sure that certain members of Congress liked the fact that these things were, were happening. I mean, you, you think too that 
apparently, and I wasn't a big G.I. Joe fan again, but apparently, even though there were guns all over that show, they were laser guns and they, they never hit anything. And when a plane exploded or a jet or a helicopter in the next frame for a second, you would see the character's parachute coming out. Uh, so no one ever really got hurt in those shows. No one ever really dies. Do you believe that? And yet, if you would have polled or asked kids from the 1980s what happened in the G.I. Joe cartoon, I'm sure they would have the impression that, well, G.I. Joe and Cobra shoot each other and blow each other's planes out of the sky. So the child's imagination does seem to trump or override the obnoxious, uh, illogical messaging that the moral police try to put into these sorts of entertainment products. Now let's talk about She-Ra, uh, the princess of power, who figures in both of the documentaries that I watched and in a lot of the online discussion of the Masters of the Universe franchise. Uh, some people, not many, but some people look at uh, the rise of She-Ra as if it directly contributed to the fall of He-Man. Now, a lot of what they talk about really does remind me of the culture wars of recent years, the um, Star Wars stuff, the Force is female, all that kind of stuff, uh, the ubiquitous appearance of the girl who can do anything in so many genre productions recently, whether it's the female Hawkeye or Rey from Star Wars or Captain Marvel or Batwoman or how, however obnoxiously the female versions of traditionally male properties uh, have been presented in about the last five to seven years. It's interesting to look back on how She-Ra was introduced alongside He-Man and to compare how that went with the more recent female capture of male properties, uh, for lack of a nicer term. Now, supposedly, Mattel did research and they found out that approximately 20% of He-Man's fan base was made up of little girls. So they tried, they wanted to expand that 20% and produce a product that would appeal to them and would convert other girls into becoming fans of uh, the Masters of the Universe extended franchise. They wanted to extend it to this uh, She-Ra and the Princess of Power brand. And of course, what ended up happening was that instead of keeping the He-Man male fans and growing the number of girls who were into it, um, the whole thing collapsed a year and a half later anyway. But did it collapse? Did it all collapse due to the introduction of She-Ra? There was a confluence of a few different factors. Uh, one being that they stopped producing new episodes of He-Man. Another being that there was a huge demand for He-Man action figures, but rather than give new ones out, there was, a, there was somewhat of a crunch, so they reshipped old action figures that no one really wanted. And in particular, because they didn't sell the first time, they shipped out characters like the bee guy, I think his name's Buzz Off, and Stinkor, who looked and smelled like a skunk, but they didn't really ship out new He-Man, He-Man himself. So what ended up happening supposedly was that 
they couldn't capture new consumers because little boys coming into the franchise for the first time, they wanted He-Man. They couldn't find He-Man himself. They could only find these other action figures. Now, I myself can kind of attest to something of that because I never really had an original He-Man action figure. I had Thunder Punch He-Man, who had a like a cap ring. Like there were these things called cap guns that you would buy these little rings for them, and you would put the the cap ring in the cap gun, and you would pull the trigger of of the gun, and it would sound like an actual gun would go off, but it would just be hitting against these caps. They called them. Well, uh, Thunder Punch He-Man put one of these cap rings in it, and you would wind his fist back, and uh, when you would let it go, his fist would fly over, and when it hit, a, a cap would go off, so it would sound like, you know, the, the sound of a gun, not a real gun, but a cap gun, uh, when Thunder Punch He-Man threw a punch. So I had Thunder Punch He-Man, I had, um, I don't even know what their names were, like Whirlwind Armor. He-Man, I had uh, some sort of battle damage He-Man, it might have just been called that, where his chest rotated, and uh, of course this didn't work very well, but you tapped against his chest with uh, the bad guy's sword once, and his chest would rotate to show the same chest image, but with it one scar. You would tap it again, and it would rotate and show like two scars on his chest, as if the action figure was actually showing the enemy's sword against him. So that was pretty cool. I think I I think I had two of those types of He-Man um, with the battle damage, in addition to like two or three other types of He-Man, such and such armor He-Man. I had like, how many actual He-Man action figures of He-Man did I have? I don't know, six or seven? But I never had an original, straightforward he-Man action figure from the first wave. But if by 1986, 1987, if they didn't even have the battle damage He-Man out there, or if they only had something, you know, kind of ostentatious like Thunder Punch He-Man that can't really even hold a sword, I don't think. I don't think Thunder Punch He-Man even had a sword. Maybe I'm wrong. But that would be less likely to get a new wave of two or three-year-olds into Masters of the Universe if they want He-Man, but they don't see a traditional He-Man action figure to start their line off. So that might have been a factor that probably was a factor as to why Masters of the Universe declined. Now, the thing about no new He-Man cartoons, supposedly what they did was, I mean, they, they had over 100. They, they were producing like almost 100 cartoons every year for the first few years or something like that. But then they took a break. And it just so happened that the break in production for Masters of the Universe coincided, unsurprisingly, with the introduction of the She-Ra cartoon. So the theory was that this was this the, the lack of new Masters of the Universe product on the shelves and the, the ones that were new were not very good because by the fourth or fifth year, the creativity was really wearing thin and a lot of the Masters of the Universe characters. I mean, when you have introduced like 300 characters, 300 action figures or whatever it was, 
I mean, they're just coming up with bizarre, unappealing stuff that just didn't look good or work good as action figures. I remember um, I had Masters of the Universe action figures towards the end that were like rock people, that their special ability was they could crouch down and they sort of like turned into rocks. They had like rock armor. And if you crouch them down, they look like a rock, but then they could stand up and become humanoid. I mean, it was less cool than it sounds and it doesn't sound that cool. And they had like meteorites. They had like Masters of the Universe meteorites. These characters, they were almost like Transformers. Like I had one that was like a yellow orb that opened up and became like a lion or a tiger or something. And they were these meteors that supposedly like fell to Eternia. And I had like two of them. I had the the, the cat one. I, th- I think it was a tiger. And I had like a red one that had like a... I want to say like a blue panther inside, you know, you would open up the egg and it would become this creature. And they're, they were not that good. I mean, they're not very cool action figures. So the Masters of the Universe figures on the shelves, they were either old ones that didn't sell the first time, not traditional He-Man, or the new ones were weird shit. So when, when that's happening and there's a lack of new Masters of the Universe cartoons, compared to all these new She-Ra cartoons. I mean, what what is the fan base supposed to think? Now, I was too fucking young to understand this. I, I don't remember this. I mean, maybe if I was like 10 years old or something, or eight, I, maybe I would have started to catch on, but I don't even think then. Like, I, I didn't have this sense of like, New cartoons, when's the new season? Oh no, this is a repeat I've already seen. I mean, when you're when I was that young, I was just happy to be watching He-Man. I didn't have a sense of, oh, I've seen this show before, that sucks. Maybe I realized it. Maybe I realized I was watching a repeat, but I don't even have a sense of that. I don't even have a sense of not wanting to see a repeat or even realizing that I was watching a repeat when and if I was. I mean, I just liked He-Man. When I'm, when I'm five years old or four years old, I, I'm not going to like complain about it the way I would have if I was a, if I was a teenager. I mean, I remember when I, was a, when I was a teenager and Dragon Ball Z was airing in the U.S. for the first time. When it got to the end of the the translated episodes at the time, and it wound back to episode one for the third time, I was you know that pissed me off. Well, it pissed me off some. I mean, I wasn't a big Dragon Ball Z fan, but you you know what I'm saying. Like that that was a real disappointment, and it was a real disappointment a few years earlier than that. In when was it ninety five or so? When it became pretty obvious that like they had stopped production on the Batman, the animated series cartoon, and they were not really showing many new episodes. They were just showing the old ones. Or when there was a new um, Adventures of Batman and Robin cartoon season, and the season turned out to be five episodes, and that's it. Um, I remember understanding that and being disappointed with that when I was whatever, 13 years old or something. But when I'm four years old, when, when you're talking about cartoons for two-year-olds to eight-year-olds primarily, I mean, I, most of the people in that group, especially the young ones coming in, they're, they're, they're not going to be disappointed when there's not a new Masters of the Universe season, especially if they're so young 
and there's so many episodes at the time, I just don't think that was a big factor. Now, I guess it could have been a a factor, especially for the weird 12-year-olds who are still into He-Man if they're that old by then. But this is what people said. People said they saw She-Ra coming into the picture. They saw the new She-Ra cartoons, the lack of new Masters of the Universe cartoons coupled with the lack of He-Man, specifically He-Man action figures, the new action figures that sucked, and the glut of old action figures for He-Man and Masters of the Universe that were um, just sitting on the shelves at that point. That's what they said, and they they said that the introduction, the appearance of She-Ra, that some of the boys didn't like it, that it was a girl invading a boy's space. And it's one of the documentaries, they went into that and they even said more things like, oh, they, they thought She-Ra was emasculating He-Man. I don't remember that. I don't see any, um, I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see any evidence of He-Man playing second fiddle. Now, there's so many episodes that maybe you could cherry pick things here and there, but... From what I remember and from what I've seen looking back on it, He-Man and She-Ra really seem to be co-leads. And even in a lot of the She-Ra episodes, from what I remember, He-Man would be brought in. And there may have been new She-Ra cartoons when there weren't new He-Man cartoons, but a lot of the bad guys from the She-Ra cartoon, their action figures were Masters of the Universe branded. And they came with comic books that showed Hordak, who was primarily She-Ra's antagonist, fighting He-Man. And I remember loving the evil Horde. I thought the evil Horde was great. And to see the evil Horde, uh, from what I remember, you mostly watched She-Ra. So I remember watching the She-Ra cartoon. Now, I, I, didn't, I didn't like or not like She-Ra. I didn't care about She-Ra. I watched the She-Ra cartoon for the evil horde. Remember, because I liked the bad guys and the evil horde, Hordak, Grizzlor, Mantena, especially Modulok. I mean, holy shit, Modulok was such a cool, such a cool character. He, you could build him any way you wanted. You, you bought, and I, I remember my parents bought me probably like two or three different action figures of the character because he popped apart. He had multiple heads, multiple legs, different types of legs and arms, and you could just build this figure. It's a great character. And uh, there was a robot version too, uh, some other character. I forget what his name was, but it was the same idea. But I loved the evil Horde. I had the slime pit. I had, what was it, the, the Horde's lair with the, with the puppet. And you had to watch the She-Ra cartoon to see the evil horde. And I mean that must have been 1985, 1986 at the at the most. So, I mean, I don't see all of these nitpicks that some of the critics want to place on the Shira property. Now, a, a lot of those criticisms I could see being applied to recent traditionally male entertainment franchises where the male characters are treated like idiots and they immediately become second fiddle, helpless cowards who need the new strong female character to get them out of every bind. And this 
female protagonist seems to usually have no personality, you know, whether it's Rey from Star Wars or the more recent Captain Marvel, they don't have personalities. These strong female characters have no personalities. Their, their personality is, quote unquote, strong female character, and that's it. But I don't remember she being that way. And I remember being sensitive at the time to uh, whenever there was like a conflict between a male and, and a female character. I remember sensing like, I guess, proto-femdom, you would even call it. Once upon a time, I did a retrospective of the comic books that I had when I was a, a little kid. And there was a theme that ran through, I don't know, maybe half a dozen of the ones that stuck in my mind where the, it's the male protagonist being challenged and overcome by a female rival of some sort. And I remember even as a kid that that sort of twinged my antennae, which is understandable. I mean, it's how children try to relate to gender norms or whatever you want to call it. And uh, that's a long way of saying that I would have remembered, it would have stuck with me if She-Ra was all of a sudden emasculating He-Man. Like that would have stuck with me. I, I would have felt some way about that. And I don't remember that at all. I mean, the, and from what I, when I've gone back and watched a few episodes recently, I, I don't see She-Ra or her human counterpart, Princess Adora, I don't see her being used as a Mary Sue or as a sort of a woke scold, I guess, as you could call it. But here's what I would say as far as consumers getting their nose out of joint or feeling that like the product line is over, whereas the evil horde characters as action figures were branded masters of the universe, the She-Ra good characters like She-Ra herself and her friends, including uh, the infamous Bo, they were sold as if they were Barbies. They And I never had one. And I wouldn't have been opposed to having a She-Ra action figure. I didn't have Tila, but I did have Evil Lynn. Remember, I liked the bad guys. So I had an Evil Lynn action figure, and I had no compunction about that. I never got around to, to getting Tila. Uh, maybe because Tila was an earlier action figure. I don't know. But I would have thought She-Ra was an important enough character to get an action figure of. But I never got one. And I didn't even know what they looked like. Probably because they weren't in the boys' section of the toy aisle. They were sold in almost like a Barbie-type packaging. And I think that that was a mistake. I mean, they, they should have put them in Masters of the Universe packaging. I mean, after all, the, the line is Masters of the Universe. Sometimes it's He-Man in the Masters of the Universe, and He-Man was, of course, the main character. But Masters of the Universe should encompass She-Ra as well. And I think maybe, I think maybe whatever branding problems they ran into could have something to do with your new hero line looking more like it's a it's a Barbie toy when it. It could have just been placed uh, in Masters of the Universe branding. But that, that goes into some of the, I think, internal power dynamics at the Mattel offices because um, the big Mattel toy was, of course, the Barbie line. And 
it was briefly for one time eclipsed when Masters of the Universe became so hot. And uh, reading between the lines and hearing what some of the people on the documentary had to say, the He-Man people were very much aware that the Barbie people didn't like it. They, they didn't like it that all of a sudden the boy toy, uh, that there was a boy toy that eclipsed the girl toy. That uh, for one year, one or two years, the sum total of the boy toys at Mattel uh, or maybe even in the entire industry by that point, when you add in G.I. Joe and Transformers, they eclipsed the amount of revenue that was generated by all of the girl toys, specifically with the Barbie line being, you know, the, the crown jewel. After Masters' first year, the combined boys' toys were, for the first time, larger in sales than all the girls' toys, which caused all of the girls in the girls' toys area to go berserk. And I think they were pretty much determined to make sure that wasn't going to happen again. Here we go where, you know, we're always hearing that, oh, there's nothing for girls, there's nothing for girls. Well, welcome to the modern world where every single group thinks that they're the victimized one. And they didn't like it when all of a sudden this Masters of the Universe line, they didn't have any history behind it, you know, this um, mythology that was created instantly, all of a sudden eclipsed in sales, the perennial number one. The Barbie people didn't like that. So, I mean, if the shoe was on the other foot, you'd have all sorts of articles talking about how He-Man sabotaged Barbie because the boys couldn't take it, that they were surpassed, and really, you could expand it even more. It's like, well, let's see, how how did the animation regulation laws work? What actually happened? Well, it was in response to all of these girls' lines becoming popular and profitable, and finally there's a bunch of successful girls' lines. We can't have that, so the government's going to take it away. That's what would be said if it was the girls' lines that were sabotaged. But it wasn't the girls' lines. It was all of a sudden in the 80s. What you have is these new properties, He-Man, Thundercats, Transformers, Ninja Turtles, and this revived property uh, with the G.I. Joe line. All of them take off like crazy. And there's this new cohesive consumer culture for mostly little boys that's a lifestyle brand. And you have the action figures. You're watching the cartoon there's going to be an animated film that's out in theaters. You, you're going to get that when it comes out on VHS. Uh, there's going to be a live action movie, blah, blah, blah. So they ended all that. And then quite promptly, the boys' side of the aisle fell back down to where it was previously. And um, the most amount of revenue from toys were toys targeted to girls. And yet what you hear about when you hear about Masters of the Universe you hear a narrative about how, well, Masters of the Universe appealed to 20% girls. It's only 20%. We tried to cater a little bit more to them, and all the boys just blew everything up and took their toys and went home, and no more He-Man. That's what you hear, and and yet, um, I mean, I don't think it's the opposite either. I don't think that, I don't think that the Barbie people actually, actually sabotaged He-Man. But um, it kind of looks that way, kind of, almost. I don't think they did, but I think that 
if someone was going to construct the sort of a conspiracy theory in that respect, uh, you'd have more to go on than a lot of uh, the anti-female conspiracy theories that you, you hear otherwise when you hear about pop culture grievances and whatnot. But I always liked the She-Ra cartoon, and they state in the documentaries, and I, I think it's true that a lot of the people that worked on the She-Ra cartoon who also worked on the Masters of the Universe cartoon liked the She-Ra cartoon more. And I think that simply for the fact that you know, roughly the same collective had been working on this sort of property for a few years, had been working you know, for hundreds of, hundreds of episodes of He-Man by that point, and they had really hit, hit their stride in terms of producing a cartoon I don't know anything about the more recent She-Ra cartoon or cartoons, just like I don't know much about the later Masters of the Universe cartoons. I know that they exist. I, I think, frankly, I think it's really weird, particularly the He-Man cartoons from the very late 80s or the early 90s, when they try to revamp him as a sort of space hero. I think I think the designs, the new adventures of He-Man I think that the designs just look so weird. And I know that in the early 2000s, they revamped the cartoon and to try to go back to the classic early 80s design, but do it with more contemporary animation and with, I guess, smarter sensibilities. Um, and it's supposedly good, but I, I've, I've never seen much of it, just clips here and there. And I, I, frankly, I don't have much interest. Uh, I suppose I should mention the Dolph Lundgren movie as well. I mean, I, I thought it was okay at the time, but it, it, was, it came a year and a half too late for it to be a big hit. But uh, in some of the documentaries that I watched when they're talking about that movie, Frank Langella in particular, who played Skeletor, he's talked about how much he brought to that role and how much he really took it seriously and tried to endow the character with really uh, well-thought-out mythological evil characteristics, um, especially in the dialogue. And he talks about, I, I, find, I found it kind of amusing, where he talked about how he and the, the screenwriter, maybe the director, read a lot of Joseph Campbell. Maybe they even contacted Joseph Campbell to get real substantive and uh, mythologically resonant statements and concepts uh, into the Skeletor character. And I, I just find it funny because um, what Joseph Campbell did was he researched folklore and he looked into mythologies from around the world. And w what is folklore? What is mythology? Well, once again, it's the collective authorship of a people. It's stories from collective authorship that is fine-tuned and wrought over the centuries, and yet it would resonate easily with, with every child that's brought up in that culture. Uh, that's the ideal transmission, that you, you grow up in this culture, and you, you of course know what evil and good is in the culture. You, you know that from the stories these are the stories of your people, of your genuine culture that's actually passed down in a realistic, uh, non-technological way. And someone like Joseph Campbell, uh, in the modern world, you, you have to research it. You have to make a conscious effort to deduce 
the rules of good and evil even. And then we have this artificial property, this uh, ersatz mythology, this uh, fake culture story called Masters of the Universe. And uh, it's, it's not real culture. It's not real mythology. And in the movie for it, you have the guy playing the force of evil consciously researching the scholarship of Joseph Campbell. So we're, we're, not, we're not deriving a real or a natural portrayal of evil that we would know from the culture, from the stories that we've actually heard firsthand as our real culture. We're self-consciously trying to get it from a piece of scholarship, from an academic. And that's not to put down Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell taught at uh, one of my alma maters, Sarah Lawrence College. He uh, taught alongside my uh, Greek and Latin professor, Sam Siegel, who I mentioned. And uh, Sam Siegel is a classicist and uh, or was, I don't know if he's still alive, he was a um, classicist and uh, expert on ancient cultures and mythologies, and he had a lot of good things to say about Joseph Campbell when Joseph Campbell taught there. Joseph Campbell also co-authored the Skeleton's Key guidebook of uh, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which is one of the first, and I would say still the best guide to Finnegan's Wake. So it's no put-down of Joseph Campbell. I'm just... Uh, trying to draw out the artificiality and uh, the very modern situation where Skeletor in the Masters of the Universe film, uh, the actor behind it, it's all very self-conscious. It's all, you, you have to think things out. You have to really try to formulate evil in a way that draws upon human culture. Whereas before the modern age, everyone would have just known it anyway, pretty much just from their folklore, uh, they would have known what evil was. And now we, we don't know what evil is. We, we vote for evil every single time we vote for. We always vote for the second most evil person on the ballot, and yet we don't know. We, we do that because we don't know what evil is. That's why things like that happen. But yeah, so the, all of these later uh, recapitulizations of Masters of the Universe, He-Man and She-Ra also, now, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in any of them, but what I, what I would say is it's, it's very odd that you look at these other entertainment properties that have had more legs. Of course, there's the aforementioned Barbie. I think they still make some sort of Barbie dolls for girls. I know they have like high-end ones for collectors, but I think there's still a Barbie line. And you have um, all sorts of Transformers. The Transformers really... Um, never seems to die out. Transformers just keeps going. Of course, you could get into uh, Nintendo properties too, but even just to keep things with action figures and with toys, there's the G.I. Joe line. It's not as prominent as it was, but there's still G.I. Joes out there, or at least the G.I. Joe line lasted from the 80s onward a lot longer than the Masters of the Universe line did. And I know that today there are like a, a classic line of uh, Masters of the Universe toys that looks, it's made to look a lot like the old early 80s action figures and uh, they're available in mass market chains. I would assume that most of those are, are sold to actual little kids that 
enjoy them in a straightforward way. In other words, they're not sold to ironic adult collectors, most of which won't even open the packaging, although I'm sure a lot of them are sold that way too. But uh, it, it is still odd that there was this huge brand, Masters of the Universe, that was as big as as any franchise could have possibly been for a few years, and yet comparatively, compared to G.I. Joe, compared to Barbie, compared to Transformers, compared to even like Sonic the Hedgehog, it just does not have a enduring mass appeal in a straightforward way to successive generations of kids. When they've tried to do new He-Man cartoons, they don't catch on with, with kids that much. Uh, nowhere near to the extent that they did in the 80s. And yet with Masters of the Universe, it's a very good example of a nostalgia brand on which the whole phenomenon of the adult fan, the adult collector, really became a thing. You see in these documentaries that from the late 90s or the early 2000s, especially on up, Mattel did try to cater to an adult collector and they, they harped on the nostalgia. They produced high-end action figures direct to the consumer for the most part, it, it seems, and they, they've done hundreds of them now. Uh, I can't tell you the names of these lines left off the top of my head, but the I mean the action figures look really cool, and I'm sure that half of them that are produced are, are not opened. They sell to adults who are older than I am, and this is the phenomenon that we have now. And uh, when there's a new He-Man cartoon, as there was last year, I think it was directed or conceived by Kevin Smith. And it, it does not go over well with fans. Well, you have YouTube videos that get half a million hits in which people in their 50s complain about it. And the criticisms are probably right. And, and yet, just the whole phenomenon is just very weird. It's part of the larger nostalgia phenomenon, of, of course. And uh, what I'd want to say uh, about that, I, I just... I've had this in my head for so long, I just need to talk about it somewhere. The first time I noticed um, a, a child's brand being marketed outside of the age group, you know, to an older age group. Now, I'm sure this, you could say, well, what about the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman movie? Yeah, but that's a new product for, for an audience that was older than the traditional Batman fan. But a new product that looks just like the old one from childhood that's marketed, if not to an adult, then to a person older than uh, the original product to be consumed straightforwardly by a child. It was in uh, mid to late 1990s, and th this kid that I went to school with, he was a year or two older than I was, and uh, he had a Mr. Bubble t-shirt. And what Mr. Bubble was, was, of course, a brand of bubble bath. And on the bottle, there was this cartoon character, Mr. Bubble. Well, the, this kid at school, who was a year or two older than, than I was, he came to school. I mean, he's a teenager. He was, at the time, probably 16, I want to say. And he had a Mr. Bubble t-shirt. 
It was clearly, you know, larger than a child's size. It was not, it was obviously marketed to, to a person much older than anyone who would use Mr. Bubble in any sort of straightforward way. And that's the first time, that's really the first time I ever saw. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like an adult version of, of the Mr. Bubble character. It wasn't like, uh, you know, the, the Batman 89 or the Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns version of the Mr. Bubble character. It was the same exact childish, cartoony, original Mr. Bubble. And that's the first time I, I saw it. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but I... Now you see that everywhere. I mean, you see people with T-shirts. You've seen you've seen people for for over twenty years. But I mean, I I think this especially picked up in the mid aughts or the early to mid aughts. But this sort of ironic thing, you you see it all the time. I mean, you can get a you can get an adult XXL T-shirt with a Looney Tune character. Yeah, there are also adult T-shirts with the Mickey Mouse logo on it. But often those were updated. I mean, often in, in the 90s when I saw someone with a Taz, you know, Taz the Tasmanian Devil. Because that, that was a fad for a while in, in the 90s. But he would be like a hip updated Taz. He would have sunglasses on or, or something. And regarding, you know, t- adult t-shirts with the Mickey Mouse logo, well, that's, you know, such a big brand. Same with Looney Tunes. I mean, that's just everywhere in the culture anyway. I mean, adults can have fun going to Disneyland too. But to get all these tertiary brands like a, like a Mr. Bubble that is not, not a presence in the culture the way Mickey Mouse is, not a constant presence in the culture the way that a Bugs Bunny is, to just pull something out just pull something back. Oh, remember that from when you were five years old? Here's the exact same logo, the exact character on an adult-sized T-shirt. Mr. Bubble in, in the mid to late 90s when I saw it on that kid's shirt, that was, that's the first time I, I, I'd seen it. And uh, I mean, the phenomenon's everywhere now. I mean, it's, it isn't anything to, to see all sorts of things. You know, you get a, uh, Transformers logos for your car. It's just everywhere. And I mean, there's no separation between youth culture and I guess genre culture, you know, pop culture culture for adults now. And that's where they can still find a market for Masters of the Universe as this instant mythology that was created. You could call it a flash in the pan. But is it really a flash in the pan if they're still using it? They're, and it's not really catching on with successive generations. But for the generation that liked it at the time and continues to be, you know, expert fans, died in the wool, fans for life. You know, I mean, there's there's the NWO for life, but th- there's also um, you know Masters of the Universe for life, where this copyrighted property catches on with comparatively few people from successive generations but for the one generation that it found fans in it will be a vicarious mythology for those fans for the rest of their life 
And uh, I mean, if, if it seems like my commentary is running into the negative, yeah, I mean, I, I think people should have real culture. I think they should have really strict and hard and fast rules as to what good and bad are. And I don't think we've been served well with, with all this artificial culture as our guiding light in much of life here. And yet, as I said, I mean, it was a hell of a lot of fun as a kid to have these properties. Now, how, how do you separate the impression that such a property can have on a three-year-old or a six-year-old? Uh, how do you limit any adverse effects? Uh, well, I mean, the people coming up with it in the 1980s were not malevolent, crazy people the way that... Uh, Warning to the listener. The following rant goes on for nearly 10 minutes. Everyone is encouraged to skip ahead to around the 1 hour 37 minute mark. Don't say you were not warned. The people coming up with it in the 1980s were not malevolent, crazy people the way that... Uh, I mean, I just saw an, a puff advertisement. Uh, it's an artic- It was an article on my Facebook feed that may as well just be an an advertisement for this Star Wars Andor show. It wasn't put out from the Lucasfilm or any, it was put out by some other geek site, but the whole point of the post was just to talk up how wonderful this Star Wars Andor movie is. And there, I I forget exactly what it said, but it, it talked up about how, oh, this carefully wrought storyline, superb direction, meticulous characterization as we follow these rebels against the fascist empire and how goodness can prevail against whatever ominous, overwhelming totalitarian malevolence or whatever the fuck. And it's just, I I just think that the people behind this show... (laughs) They're they're all Hollywood types. I mean, what does anyone in Hollywood have to tell anyone about good and evil? I mean, you're you're in Hollywood for fuck's sake. If you're not evil yourself, you're so severely compromised by what you've. Ju- I mean, it doesn't, you don't even have to get too too political. Just find out how many of them knew about Harvey Weinstein. Find out how many of them knew about uh, whatever FTX. Or any number of other scandals. You don't even have to go into how how they vote. I mean, they're so severely compromised. The very idea that any of those people would have anything real to say about right and wrong, in really in any situation, I, I'm I would still guess. I haven't seen. I, I would guess that okay, well, probably this Andor show is is pretty good. But it, to think that it would be anything more than just strictly vicarious. To think that this is going to be like a, a tent pole, uh, proving the greatness of our culture. How can it? I mean, even, even if the morality presented in the show is rock solid, can you do anything with that morality? Uh, no, because you whatever you're going to do in this culture is already dictated by the strict limitations of uh, who are the good guys and the bad guys in the culture, uh, who cannot be criticized, who must always be criticized, who must always be scrutinized 
versus those who cannot bear to be scrutinized on any level. Even the overview that I'm giving now is just too much criticism for them to bear, even though they're the ones pushing totalitarianism on everyone in the real world. Then they take a break and have this little play, this frivolous little play that they film and put out there as something really great for us to fucking learn from. I mean, it's also compromised. Footnote. It's just laughable, absurd, and a farce to consider the people behind uh, these sorts of shows now to present an audience with an examination and an exploration of a good versus evil story to think that anyone in Hollywood, certainly anyone that works for the Walt Disney Company, would have any sort of uh, ethical high ground or would be a fount of morality in any way on anything at this point, if they're not the most immoral people in history, uh, which they're not quite, but uh, when you combine their immorality with their cowardice and the fact that they're just mundane, very boring people, it's really unparalleled. And to consider that, oh, these people can entertain a mass audience and impart a sense of discernment as to uh, good and evil, right and wrong. It's just uh, it's just absurd. And how can you apply any of the lessons, any of the conflicts that they present in their shows? The audience, just like the actors, they just go with the flow. They never stand against anything that pop culture doesn't already tell them is the bad thing. End of footnote. But I've also thought that if I was someone in charge and I wanted all these adult nerds, these geeks, these overgrown, aged fanboys to get their lives together and maybe even to sort of prod them into a revolution, like an actual physical revolt against the culture, against the way things are, then what I would do would be exactly what the people at Disney and the people at Marvel and the people at all these other geek consumer entertainment companies have been doing to make them feel unwelcome in these legacy fandoms. The solution to having too many people still concerned with Star Wars and with comic books and with Warhammer figurines at the expense of there not really being an actual culture or a healthy society anymore. The solution would be for these people, and the, the sports fans also, uh, would be for the men to just get disgusted and to put away childhood things. So the way to do that would be to um, make them feel unwelcome, make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, when they tune in to the football game, they should see political stuff. Uh, when they tune into the sports highlights, uh, more and more of the reporters and the pundits should be women, should be um, women who are not there because of their looks. But uh, there shouldn't be male spaces if you don't want men to waste their lives with these uh, frivolous pursuits. And you should take all of these things like Warhammer or like Magic the Gathering and you should insert obnoxious politically correct initiatives 
and you should take the comic books and the movies and you should just uh, completely hamstring them with quote-unquote diversity measures and you should make the property as bad as possible. You should let it be known that the editors and the creators behind these franchises now do not like Luke Skywalker, that they think there's a problem. They think Han Solo is toxic masculinity and has no real redeeming qualities that he shouldn't feel constantly guilt-tripped over. That's what you should do if you want to kick these people out of their hobbies and uh, maybe cause a revolution or... Uh, even just, you know, let, let them get their lives together. Let them spend the time that they would have spent obsessing over a Boba Fett TV show. And they can take that time and they can learn how to hunt or build a house or um, teach their son how to shoot a bow and arrow or use a knife to skin an animal or how to fight. But uh, that's not what's happening. It's not some kind of reverse psychology thing, but... At the same time, I would look at all of these um, fermented entertainment properties at the way that they are now, the way that the top brass are now. I mean, they're just all so disappointing and toothless. And uh, I would look at, look at on the bright side, look on the bright side that the properties and the people behind them and the universe itself is doing everything it can to sort of kick you on the ass as an adult or as a male, uh, one or the other or both, and just um, stop obsessing over these things, or at least stop thinking about them in a straightforward, raw, consumeristic way, and do something better. But, uh, I mean, our whole entire civilization is artificial at this point, and a major facet of it is all of these artificial mythologies that have been built up, some of them better than others. Star Wars, one of the best. Uh, Masters of the Universe, not horrible. And we do have to try to understand what these things were that obsessed us so much, uh, if only to put them in their place. Something worth remarking on was how they would reuse the same mold parts for multiple characters. A lot of the action figures in the Masters of the Universe line had the same chests or the same feet or arms, and uh, they were a lot like palette swaps, which recalls the facet of popular culture and consumerism that Warhol latched onto when he did multiple different screen prints of the same image or very similar images, just with different colors the orange Marilyn Monroe, the shot red Marilyn Monroe, the mint green Marilyn Monroe. It's a consumer choice. They're the same, but they're slightly different. And that's what consumer culture is, mass manufacture, just with slight differences between the products. And rather than feeling cheated, uh, as a kid, I always thought that was neat that uh, Merman and Stinkor were I think those two characters are basically the same mold, pretty much exactly, just one of them's green and one of them's black and white. They even had a character, Fakor, who was an evil Prince Adam. He, the, the mold was the same as Adam, but he was colored, I think he was purple or something like that. Uh, but even the arms and the legs between multiple characters, 
they just used the same ones. And of course, He-Man's sword was silverish gray and Skeletor's sword was dark blue, but they're basically the same sword. Uh, they interlocked and fit together. So I guess the, the joining side was slightly different. But this is, as a kid, I didn't feel cheated. It felt neat to recognize that the characters were the same in certain ways. I and mean, it's it's like palette swap Sonic the Hedgehogs too. People like that. Kids like that. If only because you can sort of see how something's made. You can see how they did it. Or at least you can see an aspect of it. So a lot of contemporary culture and the artificial environment that we're in, it's made up of objects and devices that are highly wrought and we don't know how anything works or how anything was actually manufactured or it's rare to. We don't know how our TV works. We don't really understand many of the plastic molds that produce our consumer goods. But when as a kid you see, oh, this character is the same as that one, just colored differently. That's kind of neat. Something else about the Masters of the Universe action figures was that uh, the feet were not positioned straight ahead. In one of the documentaries, they remark on this fact that uh, previously the dolls, uh, which is what they were, action dolls, they had the, the figure's feet positioned straight ahead. But with He-Man and his friends, they're manspreading. They're, their feet are a little bit apart. They're sort of pointed outwards. So you look at the extent to which He-Man just exudes masculinity. And even with the positioning of his feet and all the other Masters characters too, they're positioned outward. They're actually manspreading, you could say. Now, that's a question in and of itself. How masculine is He-Man really? Uh, when you watch the show, he's not just only using violence. He's using his head quite often too. Uh, and yet the whole thing, uh, I mean, this is as masculine as it gets as far as popular culture goes. It is an asymptote. It's an exemplar. Uh, it approaches uh, an ideal uh, and yet at the end of the day, what is it? It's a, it's a fake, it's a phony, it's a manufactured conceit of what masculinity could be. Kids from the 80s who grew up with He-Man, on average, grew up to be weaker, less masculine people than their fathers and their grandfathers. On average, that's just how it went. So, I mean, you can trace that to lots of different things, but the point is that growing up with He-Man did not supercharged masculinity within young males, at least not to any uh, significant or lasting degree. Because, I mean, maybe you can't sell a population on weak masculine characters right off the bat, but if you can get a society invested in a fake masculine, in, in a fake culture, then you can take it wherever you, you want to take it. And I've said this I think on other podcasts that um, something like He-Man would be a camel's nose under the tent that if a father, if a family is suspicious of the culture that's on TV, uh, if someone religious thinks that maybe it's inherently evil or if someone is suspicious of 
underlying political messages, then they might be more open, though, to something from the 80s or something that looks like it's from the 80s, whether it's a He-Man or a Arnold Schwarzenegger character. And yet one way or the other, the defining trait is that it's fake, that it's, it's not a real culture hero. It's a manufactured mythology. And once you get someone invested, once you get a culture or a people or a society invested in a manufactured culture with fake ideals, then you can take them anywhere you want to. And it, it makes it easier if the first thing you're introducing into the cultural pool would be something that does look like a traditional hero with classical gender norms, you might say. That said, I mean, I, do I think He-Man was a psyop? Do I think Arnold Schwarzenegger movies were a psyop? Do I think that the people behind them thought, well, we can get a whole generation or two invested in fake culture and then we can start giving them the Ray Skywalkers and the goofball Tom Greens and Jim Carrey's and whatever other culture figures uh, might be more overtly unhealthy in non-traditional ways. No, but I think that's just how it played out. I think that's how the conveyor belt of popular culture went. That, of course, uh, there would be a huge boom in pop culture whenever something like He-Man and the other 80s franchises uh, could be uh, manufactured and distributed virtually and in toy shops. It was inevitable with, uh, within the strum and drang for, at some point, a, a very... Uh, aggressive but superficial masculinity would be presented. Uh, I think that's just inevitable. But the defining trait of all of it and the important one to keep in mind is that it's not real mythology. It's not real culture. Uh, no matter how masculine it is, it's not an antidote if it's at root fake. And so I don't really think that the policymakers and the politicians and the regulators or the people on the children's action committees or the psychologists involved really had an idea of the extent to which they were trying to legislate children's personalities or their outlooks towards the world. Uh, whether they would grow up in a sort of consumeristic mold or the fun they would have or the fun they would be prevented from having. Uh, I don't think they realized what the consequences of the action figure slash cartoon hybrid culture would be having and what the effects would be for that generation of kids all throughout life and how that generation affected other generations afterwards. I don't think that they really considered it. I think that each group of people had their own special interests, whether it was uh, trying to be moral or whether it was uh, looking out for the violent content or whether it was more uh, laissez-faire capitalist. But they didn't really put together how growing up within that kind of consumeristic environment in which there were these entertainment franchises that drew upon 
classical storytelling and mythological motifs and repackage them in a, as a sort of lifestyle brand to engage children. Uh, I don't think that they really would have been able to have foreseen uh, the extent to which that kind of engagement would create a culture in and of itself that is really unique, uh, certainly fun to grow up within. And for better or worse, uh, it did affect the personalities of the kids that lived through it and affect their outlooks, their worldviews, what they thought culture could be and should be. So what was it like to grow up with this kind of consumerist lifestyle just embedded in your spirit as a boy? Uh, what was it like to have these uh, these little dolls that were also objects of power? I mean, they, they weren't just toys. They were somewhere between uh, like a holy item and a voodoo doll. They were objects of power, kind of, and uh, they lived in our minds. The actual toys were just um, earthly forms that had a direct connection to the platonic ideal of the ultimate good, of uh, the ultimate evil. We watched their exploits on TV, but even more than what we saw in the cartoons, they lived in our minds like one of the creators of He-Man said, in his mind, they're still carrying out the battles to this day. Skeletor became the very essence of evil. He actually represents fear. And Skeletor kept fighting He-Man. Uh, in my imagination, they're still fighting to this day. But the toys were the earthly objects that connected us to this grandiose scheme that on its own plane of reality seemed to possess more power than the actual world around us. And you can see how that could lead to psychological problems and could lead to wrong evaluations, wrong priorities about what's important in life. And it would carry out, of course, not just with these uh, childhood entertainment properties, but you can see the same sorts of problems cropping up of course, with people who care so much about what's on TV or what's on a screen versus what's in their actual life, it's easy to see how people could get their priorities screwed up because they hold in higher regard than they should the power of pop culture, the power of celebrity. And in a sense, we were kind of trained in an aspect of that when we lived through the big uh, 80s and early 90s toy slash cartoon explosion but it was fun and if it didn't um if it didn't influence if you didn't have to live in real time if uh if time didn't have to change then it would be a great time to stay frozen in because it was so much fun and in and of itself i don't think it was unhealthy and all of the consequences that it could be said to have uh, for our generation they aren't necessarily bad. The legacy of it isn't necessarily bad. It can illuminate other culture and uh, can give you tools to understand other things that are going on in the world. I remember uh, 
in the early 2000s when I was getting more and more into rap music. At one point, I thought that the rappers, particularly the gangster rappers, I thought of them as, quote, action figure poets, that they were like action figure poets. They were poetic in what they did primarily, uh, which was the rapping. That was a sort of poetry, but the sort of poetry, the excitement of it, the violence of it, the uh, good versus evil aspect of it, the existential masculinity of it, it seemed, it reminded me of playing with action figures uh, from my childhood. That was the exaggeration of it, but that was also the fun of it and the heroic spirit of it. Uh, at one point, one of my friends and I, and when we were in college, we, uh, we compared Tupac to Ulysses, um, but that's, uh, that's getting far afield of what I wanted to talk about here. And with that, perhaps a bit abruptly, our episode has come to an end. Follow Fake Andy Warhol on Instagram. Subscribe to fakeandywarhol.substack.com. Purchase the Warhol slash Chris Chan book on Amazon. Thank you to all who listen, like, and share. This call will now end. Goodbye.
In my lifetime, I've learned. Hard work pays off. Dreams come true. Bad times don't last, but bad guys do.